0: Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 52, Part 6, The Somme Controversy. Over the last five episodes, we've seen in great detail what transpired in the British and French sectors on the first day of the Somme. In the northern sectors, British forces met with total disaster in the battlefields of Serre, Beaumont-Hamel, Thiepval, Oviers, and La Boiselle, were the sites of utter carnage and slaughter. Of the 14 British divisions which attacked that morning, 11 were met with failure, and the sheer loss of life for only scant gains has forever affected popular perceptions of that day. It is worth repeating that the British took 57,540 casualties, of which 19,240 were killed, in a battle which had been lost by 2 o'clock that afternoon. By comparison, French losses over the same period were 1,590, and Germans some 8,200, a quarter of whom were taken prisoner. Ever since, the main question has been centered on what went wrong for the British, and certainly that question still resonates today. By and large, it was 4th Army's failures in the north which has garnered the most attention from historians. Entire books are devoted to the slaughter, retelling the stories of the Newfoundlanders, Tyneside Irish, and Ninth Devonshires in vivid detail. These accounts are immensely important, and provide us a window into the minds of the men who experienced it up close. However, they do not provide a complete picture. As we saw last week, for some British units, day one of the Somme was a day of success. Units in the south fared much better. 13th Corps had captured Montauban while the 15th would secure Mamets with Corps falling overnight. Compared to events in the north, the southern battles offer a contrasting image to what we commonly associate with July the 1st. Instead of catastrophe, we see an inexperienced BEF performing on opposite ends of the spectrum. Total failure versus budding success. As we saw in part 5, there are good reasons for this difference. French assistance in the south boosted British morale and firepower while German logisticals and intelligence miscues played directly into Allied hands. Still, with so much focus given to the carnage in the North, these Southern battles often slip under the radar. Part of the problem might very well be that since they worked, they don't make very good reading. It is, after all, more fun to read about what went wrong rather than right, and ever since that dreadful first day, most studies have navigated towards the latter. In our final episode dedicated to July the 1st, we are going to take a critical view of events by stepping back from the battlefield and examining the broader picture. There will be three main talking points to help weave our way through the discussion. We'll start with the immediate aftermath of July the 1st and what the Allies plan to do next. Following that, we'll address some of the leading causes to 4th Army's failure. We'll end off the episode by discussing some of the popular myths and misinterpretations. This latter point relates to Hag and Rawlinson, these so called donkeys who sat in chateaus while their men were being slaughtered. By addressing these key issues, we'll all have a deeper understanding of why things went so poorly, and throw new light on one of the darkest days of the Great War. As the sun rose on the morning of july the second, there was no talk of shutting down the operation. Although reports of what transpired had percolated, Hag and Rawlinson remained committed to the offensive popular myth would have us believe that this was because senior command was simply indifferent to the suffering of their men. For years, historians have combed hags and Rawlinson's diaries for some trace of remorse and none have been found. Undoubtedly, this allowed lions led by donkeys to dominate later interpretations. In our modern society, it is easy to interpret their lack of sympathy to some bygone era. In its most extreme form, it accuses them of callous, sometimes class-inspired fratricide. In other words, old men sending young men to die for their own amusement. The truth is much more complicated. The main reason Haig did not suspend the campaign was coalition politics, which in turn meant the fate of Western Europe hinged on its successful execution. On July the 3rd, Haig had a sit-down meeting with Joseph Joff at Haig's headquarters in Montreuil, a small town near the coast of the English Channel. Looking at how the lines were drawn after July the 1st, Joff and Haig arrived at very different conclusions. Joff insisted that the British continue to push on a broad front, including areas north of the Albert-Bapaume Road where the BEF had been decimated. Haig, on the other hand, protested Joff's suggestion, insisting that the British position south of the main road, along the Freikor-Memetz-Montabon line, was more favourable. Haig had spent July 2nd visiting the wounded, and perhaps this experience influenced his view. The British CNC acknowledged that the focus should now be on exploiting 4th Army's gains in the south. Contrary to Joff's view, Haig saw future attacks being carried out on a much smaller scale. He wanted to shut down operations north of the main road, and swing his access to the southern sectors, thus establishing a new line running from Oviers to Montauban. When Haig informed Joff of this decision, the Frenchman flew into an absolute rage and according to one witness, simply went for Haig, accusing him of neglecting his end of the bargain and abandoning France in her time of need. A shouting match between the two men broke out, which lasted several minutes before Haig settled the debate. Firmly, Haig reminded Joff that his loyalty was to Britain, not France, and that he must command his army with Britain's interests in mind. The July 3rd flare-up resulted in strategic differences between Anglo-French leaders but it does provide a window into what could have happened had Haig decided to call off the offensive after a dreadful first day. Let us not forget that day one of the Somme was day 132 of Verdun, and Britain was committed to France's defense no two ways about it. One can easily imagine the result if Haig had informed Joff that he was shutting things down because his army had a rough go at it. The other allies would also have been offended if Britain had ditched the Chantilly Agreement especially since Italian and Russian troops were dying to fulfill their share of the bargain. In short, calling off the Somme after July 1st would have been impossible given the circumstances. Large military operations cannot be turned off and on like a light switch. Not only would this have alienated Britain and severely undermined the integrity of the Entente, it would have flown in the face of Kitchener's strategy, which had been Britain's guiding principle since 1914. The losses on July the 1st were regrettable, but rectifying 57,000 casualties by simply giving up is far worse. So what we see after July the 1st is a shift in the British access. There is a map on the website which will show this in better detail. On July the 2nd, the operations north of the albert bapaume Road were shut down. British infantry in that sector took up defensive positions and stared longingly at the German defences which had eviscerated their ranks the previous day. Securing the formidable Tiepval Ridge would have to wait. For the remainder of July and August, most of the action shifted to the area south of the main road. From July 2nd to the 14th, there were a number of flare-ups as Anglo-French forces moved to consolidate their positions. Freikorps was secured on July 2nd, and two days later, La Boiselle was taken after a determined attack from the British 19th Division. Capturing this 35-house village had cost 19th Division 3,500 casualties, but nevertheless helped straighten the line and eliminate some of the traumas suffered on July 1st. For Fayol and the French 6th Army, the British failure meant having to shoulder some of the burden. They had to give the British time to recuperate, and so in the meantime, the French continued to push on both sides of the Somme. Over the following week, the French secured positions along the Estres Road, in the eastern end of the Flucor Plateau. However, the element of shock the French enjoyed on July the 1st had fast evaporated. The Germans were defending with greater tenacity, and the fighting had become pitched. The colonials, whose dash and determination had been key to 6th Army success on July the 1st, were soon caught in a deep exposed salient which extended as far as Pyrenees As the French rolled on, the British filled out weakened sections of their front. Haig's decision to abandon operations north of the albert bapaume Road was sensible since it allowed him to shorten his front and provide his armies with greater reserves. The 8th and 34th Divisions, decimated at La Boiselle, were rotated out and replaced with the 12th and 19th Divisions. Three new army divisions also made their appearance. The 23rd and 17th, near Cantormaisons, and 38th Welsh at Mamets. It was these units which were tasked with carrying out the next phase of the fighting, which centered on a horseshoe of woods contained within the grassy bowl. Those of you familiar with the latter stages of the Somme will know these locations by heart, because they read off like a roll call of doom Mamets Wood, Bazantine Wood, Trones, High Highwood, and Delville Wood, each becoming sites of terrible attritional battles, resulting in thousands of casualties. Since it would have been impossible to reach Posier Ridge without securing them first, it was imperative they fall into Allied hands. Essentially, what we see after July the 1st is British and French forces fighting separate and uncoordinated battles. In the next episode, we'll look at the first of these battles with 19th Division's drive on Contalmaison. Now that we have a framework for how future attacks were planned, let us now turn to some of the most itching questions regarding that dreadful first day. The most commonly asked question is just what the heck happened to the British, and why were the BEF's casualties much higher than French or German? If we were to list all the underlying causes, this episode might last until the bicentennial, so instead I've isolated what I feel to be the three main causes. The first, ineffective shelling, the second, rudimentary tactics, and the third, stoic German defence. Let's briefly explore all three in better detail. Although the Anglo-French armies had pummeled the Germans with 1,738,000 shells, the result was deeply disappointing. How was this possible? Well, there are three key factors. The first is that of those 1.7 million shells, about 1 million were shrapnel, which are great against troops in the open, but practically useless against reinforced positions. This meant that most of the British shells had little to no physical effect on their German positions. What 4th Army needed were high explosive shells, which were designed to penetrate the walls of fortified positions. High explosive shells made up the remaining 700,000 rounds fired in the bombardment. However, about 45-50% to of these turned out to be duds. From this, we can deduce that only about 35% of the Allied bombardment had the designed effect. At this rate of failure, 4th Army would have needed 3 times the number of guns available requiring a rate of production still two years away. It is important to point out that these technical miscues cannot be blamed on Haig or Rawlinson. The fact that so many shells failed to detonate was the inevitable result of a rapidly expanding armaments industry. Munitions workers were learning their roles as well, and a dip in quality control was unavoidable. One does not learn the delicate art of fuse and shell making overnight, and this had terrible consequences for the soldiers. Whose very lives depended on the big guns to smash enemy' strong points and cut the wire, many have pointed to this deficiency and asked why Haig did not wait before more shells were available. But as we've seen, Haig had kicked that stone as far as it could go if he had gotten his wish and attacked in August, then maybe things would have turned out different. But the war was beyond the control of any one man or woman. Thus, when he agreed to attack on July the first, he backed his army into a wall. The argument that Haig should have waited ignores the fact that Haig did his best to delay the attack for as long as he could. Considering the French were heavily engaged at Verdun, an August attack was far too remote, and had Haig gotten his wish, we might be looking at a very different outcome. However, British command is not entirely blameless here. As we discussed in our episodes leading up to the offensive, Haig and Rawlinson disagreed on how the artillery should be used. Rawlinson's bite-and-hold strategy foresaw limited infantry attacks aimed at capturing the front line and a few objectives behind it. Haig felt Rawlinson's strategy was too conservative, and so sought to go beyond the front line in hopes of capturing the second line. Haig anticipated this would lead to the much-sought-after breakthrough. What the two men failed to recognize was that both their methods required more guns than they could realistically acquire. Attacking on a wide front meant the guns had to be spaced further apart, which reduced their effectiveness. Plus, Haig's last-minute decision to increase the depth of positions the infantry were to capture put further strain on the already overstretched batteries. For example, 8th Corps commander, Almar Hunter Weston, estimated he would need 10 shells per meter of frontage attacked. Instead, he got one and a third shell per meter. This, was the unfortunate reality for many senior officers that morning. The second reason behind the July 1st outcome was the choice of seemingly antiquated infantry tactics. Common myth would have us believe the British advanced in long, slow-moving lines, like toy soldiers, straight into the maw of the German gunners. However, a bit of digging into this matter will reveal things were not so simple. In reality, Neither Haig nor Rawlinson had any input on the speed of advance. They could make suggestions based on their observations, but it was really up to the men at the front to decide how fast or slow one would move. First World War battles, although requiring a great deal of planning, were not stuck on rigid systems. When the bullets started flying, brigade and battalion commanders were given a great amount of autonomy. To suggest that command's orders were followed verbatim all the way down the chain from the army to battalion and then company level overlooks the fact that front officers and infantry had an input as well, and actually had more influence on the battlefield than Haig or Rawlinson could ever dream of having. In some instances, like the Newfoundlanders at beaumont Hamel, poor decisions from battalion COs led to disaster, but there were others, like the East Suris, who following a soccer ball at Montauban, made great strides in the face of heavy counterfire. Of course, none of this changes the fact that many of the attacks on July the 1st were bloody failures, but it does show that things were not as simple as popularly depicted. In short, mistakes were not exclusive to the realm of the higher-ups. Men of all ranks made costly errors, but for an army experiencing its first major test, this was only expected. The encouraging news is that throughout the summer, evidence would show these lessons were being applied. The BEF was learning how to fight, and the first day of the Somme was the first day of a long, painful lesson. It has often been asked that if the French enjoyed greater success on July the 1st, why didn't the British adopt French tactics? There are a number of good answers for this. The first is what we just talked about Britain lacked the necessary shell and fire. The French did not. Furthermore, The tactical methods employed by the French were the accumulation of nearly two years of major operations. French tactics called for platoons to advance in surges. The first surge was to neutralize enemy gunners, while the second and third surges would consolidate the gains. These tactics required heavy artillery cover, and the French gunners had the experience and equipment to pull it off, while the British, at least for the moment, did not. Besides, We must never overlook the fact that the first day of the Somme was by far the largest military operation Britain had ever attempted, and at least half her forces were made up of volunteers who had never seen combat before. Haig was overly optimistic, but he was also aware of his troops' limitations. Expecting them to pull off advanced tactics in their first test would have been unrealistic, and so the only option was to apply a set of tactics which fit their level. However, To ensure tactical decisions play out, communication lines have to remain open. As we've seen in battles past, battlefield communication remained the Achilles' heel of army operations, and on the Somme, the elusive ghost showed its presence. Once an attack was underway, control of battle passed from senior level to battalion and company commanders. It fell to the men at the front to put plans into motion, which ultimately meant it was their decisions which could spell success or failure. As we saw with the Ulsters at Teepvel, it was the time lapse between the sending and receiving of orders that proved the difference. All too often, it could take several hours for news from the front to make its way to senior headquarters. Then it would take several more hours for orders to make their way back again. An update stamped at noon might not arrive until 2.30, forcing commanders to make snap decisions based on outdated information. To remedy this issue, some of the Corps commanders like Moreland, Pulteney, and Hunter Weston, adopted a timetable approach, in which reserves were locked into attack at certain times. This was done to ensure momentum was carried forward. All too often, reinforcements would arrive too late, so it was decided that reserves should be en route and not be waiting for orders that might never come. Unfortunately, the timetable approach totally backfired, which fed directly into German strength. So let us now shift to the German side and see how this all comes together. No analysis of July 1st can be complete without a brief examination of the German experience. Their defenses worked well on this section of the front. The mutually supporting spurs allowed their machine gunners to catch the British in a deadly crossfire. Their doctrine was modeled on elasticity, the basis of which was to check enemy penetration through a system of fortified redoubts, followed by rapid counterattacks. Pre-registered artillery and fixed machine guns took care of the rest. On the Somme, it was not the front-line defences which did the most damage. It was the secondary defences like the Shrine, Nordwerk, and Heidenkopf that proved problematic. What happened time and time again was that as the British entered the German system, they were splintered against these secondary defences causing a delay. In the meantime, the supporting guns along the spurs could then direct their fire onto the British reserves who, like clockwork, were making their way across Domain's land. Most of the British casualties on July 1st were incurred in the second and third waves. The reason for this was because High Command wanted reserves at hand to exploit a potential gap. In reality, this plan had the reverse effect. With the first waves contained, the German gunners could concentrate their fire on the support battalions, who were already en route, and the result was total butchery. British reserves moving up from behind their own front line were mown down in bunches, and in the case of the Newfoundlanders, were forced to march across open ground due to the confusion and congestion within their own trenches. Put simply, British tactical mistakes played directly into German strengths. Strong evidence of this comes from the fact that most British casualties were caused by German bullets and not artillery. Of course, this only happened because British shelling had been so ineffective. The simple fact that so many of the enemy have been left alive would have made any attempt, regardless of tactical choices, ineffective. Now that we've isolated the three main causes for the British failure, I want to end off by talking about Hagen and Rawlinson a little bit more. The most damning critique of British planning is that Douglas Haig and Henry Rawlinson were incompetent buffoons. They have been accused of leading the British army in the 18th century style, or as 4th Army's tactical notes read the men must learn to obey by instinct without thinking. The whole advance must be carried out as a drill. So what if the shelling was bad, tactical choices justified, and German defense stronger than expected? The fact that the attack failed so disastrously is proof enough of their competence. However, if one is to make that argument, one should also be made aware of how Hague and rollinson spent the day, and what they knew of how events were transpiring. Douglas Haig spent the morning of July the 1st at his headquarters in Montreuil, and at around noon hour, sat down to compose a letter. It was addressed to Lord Escher, the British Army liaison in Paris. The battle had been raging for nearly four and a half hours, and after a few lines about press matters, Haig dedicated his last lines to the attack's progress. It had, Haig wrote, progressed well, I have great hopes of getting some measure of success. The wire has been more thoroughly cut than ever before, and also the artillery bombardment has been methodical and continuous. Forgive a disjointed letter, but a battle is going on, and telegrams keep coming in at every moment." Quote. Ever since Haig put these words to paper, it has been used to show his utter detachment to events at the front. At a time of death and blood on the battlefield, how could the man in charge be writing personal correspondence? The truth of the matter is, at this point, the battle was beyond Haig's control, and the telegrams he received were no doubt overly optimistic, or in some cases, correct. He had noted earlier that as of 8 a.m., infantry had crossed the enemy's front trenches, and that French troops were already talking about the Rhine. End quote. As we've seen, British troops were able to cross the enemy's trenches, and Sixth Army was making progress in the south. Since Hag did not have a live stream of the battle, the timestamps on these telegrams did not accurately reflect the whole picture. For example, by the time Hag received the 8 o'clock update, it was already past 9, and the situation had changed. Time lapse played a major factor here, so to use the discrepancy as a weapon against Hag is a bit unfair. The other question which often crops up is why was Hag in his chateau and not at the front? The short answer to this question is that during the Great War, the front line was considered to be no place for the commander-in-chief of a great army. Given the limits of communication, Haig had to be in a place where he could be found, and that place was at the end of a telephone. While it's true some generals of the Second World War had portable radios and thus could adopt a more mobile form of leadership, First World War generals did not enjoy such luxury. If Haig had left his headquarters and gone to the front, his influence would have shrank to his immediate area. One can only imagine if, for an example, Joff had tried to reach Haig and Haig was off frolicking near the front. In short, it was not Haig's job to oversee the battle himself once it got under way. That responsibility was Henry Rawlinson's so where was Rawlinson? You might ask well, Rawlinson was at the front. Rawlinson had woken early that morning and at 6.30 had taken his position at an observation deck dubbed the Grandstand, which allowed him to observe an attack frontage of more than 11 kilometers, from the 36th Ulster's north of Teepval all the way to Montabon Ridge. For most of the morning, Rawlinson remained there, watching the battle and issuing directives based on the latest updates. Rawlinson had a clear view of the battle before him, however he had become transfixed by events north of the main road, Here is the issue I mentioned at the end of last day. It seems that Rawlinson was not ignorant of British success in the South, yet he was so tied to his own concept of how operations should go that he refused to change the battle plan. What we see is a major opportunity slip by, one which could have turned day one of the Somme, from an abject failure, into a surprise victory. By midday, Rawlinson had a clear idea of how events were unfolding. He knew 4th Army's attacks along the main road had been repulsed, but things along the Freikormer Metz-Montabon line offered a degree of hope. Montabon had fallen by 12.30 that afternoon, and with Horn's troops surrounding Freikormer Metz, it was only a matter of time before that area fell as well. With the French army's success astride the river, the southern sector looked ideal for the type of breakthrough scenario Haig envisioned. The trouble was, Rawlinson had no contingency plan in place for a breakthrough in the south. He had badly misjudged the strength of the German defences and limited the objectives of 13th and 15th Corps to the first position. To exploit any potential breach, Haig had given Rawlinson two divisions of cavalry, part of Herbert Goh's reserve army, which was positioned along the main road. Throughout the morning, Herbert Goh and his staff stood around the grandstand with no orders and nothing to do. It appears that Rawlinson had not even briefed Go on the day's developments, leaving him totally in the dark. However, with the fall of Montabon and Memetz looking feeble, the situation along this southern axis cried out for Goh's cavalry. We must not forget that Walter Congreve, the CO of 13th Corps, had radioed Rawlinson seeking permission to advance beyond the first position. His troops could literally see hundreds of Germans fleeing into the green fields beyond. Here was the moment which Hag had planned for, and Fulrich which Rawlinson held the key instead of sending ghost southwards. Rawlinson ordered the reserve army to stand down, and it appears Hag was not aware of this order until several hours after the two men had met some time after lunch, and there seems to have been no discussion of Rawlinson's order. Hag's only request was that for July the second. Rawlinson prepared to gain ground to leave his divisions in good position to launch secondary attacks. So what we see at this point is Haig's breakthrough scenario playing out right under their noses, but since Rawlinson had not planned for this, let alone correctly anticipated its location, he refused to abandon his own bite-and-hold strategy. This begs the question, why did Rawlinson refuse to advance, and what could have happened had he done so? the most logical explanation is logistics. Relocating Goh's army to the south would have taken time, and Rawlinson probably feared that the time it would have taken would give the Germans enough time to reinforce their defences. We know now that the German defences were in disarray, and it would be three days before they had reorganized. We know this because on July the 3rd, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Maxwell carried out a reconnaissance that took his party three kilometers in front of Montauban without once running into enemy resistance. Thus, the gap along the Anglo-French sector in the south was wide open for three days, which was more than enough time for Gough's men to relocate and fight their way forward. Even if Rawlinson feared a logistical quagmire, this does not excuse the fact that local reserves were not used at all. Ninth Division, in reserve behind 13th Corps, was not concentrated for a rapid advance. Neither was the 17th Division which was positioned just north of Freikorps. These two divisions were much closer than Go's reserves, and would have made sensible, ready-at-hand alternatives. A second explanation is that any attempt to exploit in the south would have been totally improvised, and thus held no guarantee of success. The great irony of July the 1st is that although Haig and Rawlinson held different strategies, their intended results occurred in areas neither man had planned for. Haig had expected a breakthrough along the main road, but instead got it in the south. But Rawlinson's bite-and-hold concept did not allow for such a breach to be exploited. Perhaps Rawlinson was right to play it safe, because there is no guarantee that a follow-up would have produced significant gains. However, many historians agree that even a scant gain of a few kilometers would have forced the Germans to retreat on a broad front, and take up a new position, which could not have been as strong as the one they abandoned. For the inexperienced BEF, this would have been a major political victory that could have enhanced Britain's standing in the coalition and might have severely undermined German confidence. Although it's become fashionable to accuse Haag of blindly adhering to a doctrine of a breakthrough, it is Rawlinson's refusal to consider anything but a limited approach which proved the difference. Of course, all this could have been prevented had Haag and Rawlinson hammered out their differences before the attack got underway. But if nothing else, it does show that Haag's grand plan for day one was not as far-fetched as commonly believed. It does not absolve him of his mistakes, which for tens of thousands of soldiers and their families had disastrous consequences. It does, however, undermine the argument of many of his critics. Far from being a romantic throwback to the days of Napoleon, Haig's concept had proven correct, but it was Rawlinson who ultimately wrecked the plan. Everything we've talked about up to this point is academic, The long and the short of it is that even if July 1st turned out to be a success, there would still be more battles to come. For the British, the first day of the Somme was a failure. The BEF had attempted to run before it could walk, and had paid a horrific price as a result. Although no amount of debate will reverse the events of that morning, it does suggest that the reasons behind the disaster are more complicated than widely believed. In the next episode, we'll look at the next phase of the Somme operation, Between July 3rd and 13th, 4th Army was constantly in action, mounting 46 attacks which resulted in another 25,000 casualties. In episode 53, we'll return to the albert bapaume road and look at events transpiring there. On July 2nd, 4th Army would push south of the road, capturing La Boiselle before finally pushing on the fortified village of Contomaison. From July 7th to the 9th, 17th Division would attack Contomaison three times without success, only gaining the prize on the 10th. The blood price was thousands more killed and wounded, all for a position, which on July 3rd, had been completely evacuated. That's it for this week, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com, there you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast or reach us through email at GreatWarPodcast at Outlook.com. If you are enjoying the show and want to help us out, there are a couple of ways to get involved. You can make a one-time donation through the homepage, which goes to help cover the cost of hosting and acquiring new sources. Another way to get involved is to go to iTunes and write a 5 star review iTunes charts their podcasts based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we will place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings, and help attract new listeners. This has been part 6 of episode 52 of the Great World Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.